last week, if you weren't here, you missed our psychologist in residence, I believe her new official title is, psychologist uh, in residence, Mandy, um, who shared a great message and facilitated a great conversation. And it was around uh, the concept of conviction and conviction in our lives. And, and Mandy took us on a bit of a journey, and I'd encourage you to listen to it if you haven't already, um, and talked about uh, kind of various approaches to conviction, in, often in church settings. Uh, and a lot of those approaches aren't necessarily healthy. And so she talked about approaches that sometimes uh, shame people, approaches that uh, can be about confronting people, uh, and even approaches uh, that are about trying to manipulate people into changing. And then uh, Mandy proposed a better way. And it's a way that might actually encourage and enable people to make change in their lives. And she said this, and I'm going to quote our psychologist in residence. I wonder what it would be like globally as a church if in response to difference, to struggles and to failings, we responded with opening up discussions with people about what they want to do with their lives, about how they want to change the world, and gave people and the Holy Spirit the space to help them become the person who can change the world in those ways. I wonder if that had been the approach I'd treated others with and the approach I'd been treated with, would I so quickly jump back to that image of the rule-obsessed God the second I start to feel there's something in my life that I need to change? I really love this thought from Mandy and I love this approach. And for me, uh, it really speaks to what I want us to kind of consider and talk about today, which is essentially this idea of being challenged by conviction but moved by compassion. And so conviction is essentially uh, any kind of firmly held belief or opinion. It's, it's this sense of right and wrong. Uh, and so we can be convicted of transgressing what is right. We can be convicted of doing wrong. And we can also hold on to conviction as kind of this anchor point of truth that we kind of agree that we don't cross the line on, or if we do cross the line on, then there's consequences for that. And so conviction is really often about maintaining a sense of order. It's, it's often very black and white. It's often framed, I think, in what not to do rather than what to do. It's things like don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't break the speed limit. It's about boundaries and it's about order and it's about systems, it's about rules. And it, and it kind of helps us to know what we shouldn't be doing. But conviction doesn't always or often uh, offer us the how. It, it doesn't offer nuance. It doesn't necessarily tell us uh, how to respond when those lines are crossed. And, and I think it, it often doesn't show us how to respond when our own convictions are challenged. And there's been two kind of interesting events for me this week, just, just in the general news, you, you've probably seen or heard about them, um, that for me have really kind of highlighted the danger or the problem of being moved by conviction. And, and there are two events that I just want to kind of talk through briefly. And, and the first event, um, and I don't know if you saw this in the news, but essentially it was a protest against uh, and the disruption of uh, this theatre production of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar in New York. Anyone see that? 
No. So um, basically, the short of it is, is that a group of highly motivated President Trump supporters turned up, turned up outside a theatre production uh, in New York and, and they were waving placards. And the placards said things like, uh, far left hates America. And then some of them actually stormed the stage of the production during the show and they were shouting things like, and this was kind of quoted in, in the New York Times, uh, stop the normalisation of political violence against the right. It's not very catchy, like if you're going to protest, I kind of think. Anyway, they shouted that amongst other things. And what they took, what they took exception to was essentially the portrayal of the title character Julius Caesar as a, a very clearly, there was no disguising this fact, a very clearly Trump-like figure. He, he dressed like Trump, he, he spoke like Trump, he looked like President Trump. There was references to Russia, there was a contemporary take on Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. And they took obsession to that. Now, in defense of the theatre company, they had actually done a similar production uh, when President Obama was in power and they featured in that version of Julius Caesar a very Obama-like figure. Regardless though, uh, I don't know if you know this about me, but I studied theatre at university. Um, friends of mine call it basket weaving, but I feel like it has more validity than that. Um, <laughs> but I studied theatre and I studied Shakespeare, uh, and it's my opinion, for what it's worth, that the protesters entirely missed the point. Entirely missed the point. One of the protesters stated in an interview Everybody knows deep down that this is a play that celebrates the assassination of Donald Trump. But it actually doesn't. Shakespeare's Julius Caesar is in many ways a commentary on empire. It's, it's a commentary on how violence begets violence. And, and he asks the audience to question whether the removal of a potential tyrant by murder and by kind of conspiracy and foul play is beneficial or not. It kind of poses questions around, do the ends kind of justify the means? And the reality is, given the amount of death and mayhem in this play, I don't know if you know it, but you'd have to wonder. It's in many ways uh, really a commentary on the folly and the tragedy of violent responses to tyranny. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, that's right, I, and, and I find it impossible to come to a reading or interpretation of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar that celebrates assassination. So that was event number one. Pro-Trump uh, supporters storming the stage of a Shakespearean production. Event number two, uh, for, for me, was a bit more tragic. It, it involved the death of a young man, a, a young man by the name of Otto Warmbier, who was... Uh, an American college student who was imprisoned in North Korea um, from March last year through till this month actually, till June uh, this year. And he was essentially uh, convicted by the state, the state of North Korea, uh, for hostile acts against the country. He, when he was convicted last year, he was only 21 years old uh, and he confessed to stealing a political poster, propaganda poster, and his sentence was 15 years hard labour. His conviction was all over the news uh, just over a year ago because in this, and particularly in what I would call left-leaning media, he was portrayed 
as this kind of privileged white uh, frat boy, as in sort of college fraternity. And regardless of whether this true, was true or not, what it meant was that he was essentially kind of deemed to be a bit of a fool and a bit of a joke and kind of not worth fighting for. He was in many ways deemed to be of less value. It wasn't portrayed as an outrageously hard sentence, at least in what I read. He wasn't, it wasn't talked about that he got 15 years for stealing a poster as part of a dare. It was portrayed as this dumb, privileged white kid stealing a poster. Um, just over a week ago, Otto was suddenly released by the North Korean government, but he was released in a coma. And so he came back to America in a coma, uh, and he actually died just this week, just shortly thereafter, and he was 22 years old. And the same commenters, commentators, sorry, the same commentators who, who mocked this young man and did kind of nothing to shine a light on his unjust sentence uh, are kind of now backpedaling. They actually have gone as far as deleting editorial off, off news sites um, and deleting commentary from their websites. And so it's kind of two contrasting examples of, of what a, we would call the right and the left in inverted commas. Here we see an example around Otto of how I think the so-called left are just as sanctimonious, uh, are just as self-righteous and just as arrogant as the so-called right. Because what happens when we're moved by conviction, we're driven by rules and we're driven by certitude and we kind of, I think, leave aside humanity. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 and 9 and 13 to 17 says this, Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted. Keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. This is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for, what is, for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Now, the word that Peter uses here uh, for sympathize in that first verse, when he writes sympathize with each other, actually translates directly as suffer with. And so a more literal translation of that verse would actually be suffer with each other, suffer with each other. And so what he's saying is that loving each other actually looks like suffering for and with people around you. He's saying do good rather than evil, obviously. He's saying pursue peace, suffer for doing good if you need to. But understand that in the process of doing good, sympathize, suffer with people, empathize, be moved by compassion. And this is where I think the left, in inverted commas, most often misses the point and, and can be rightly deemed as elitist because they lord their sense of justice and kind of their intellectual foundation for justice over the right. Their, their version of humanity is often deemed 
to be better than the rights version of humanity. And so they almost see themselves as better and more human. But I think that in this, they're being moved by conviction rather than by compassion. And similarly, the right, again in inverted commas, uh, when blinded by conviction, seem to lose any sense of reason, any sense of nuance. Uh, they storm the stage of Shakespearean productions and they write it off as this kind of elitist leftist superiority and wave placards of hate in the face of almost anyone who is kind of different or outside of their described norm. And I think what they miss and what we can miss in that debate is that um, Jesus and Shakespeare as well didn't, didn't actually seek to tell his audience what to think. He tried to teach his audience how to think. And, and for me, I think being driven primarily by conviction rather than compassion is a bit like the difference between being taught what to think rather than how to think. Being taught what to think is great. It's, it's fantastic. It, it keeps us going in a post-industrial age because we know what's right and what's wrong and it's safe and it's foundational and it can seem really solid and it can seem really reassuring. But what happens, partly in a rapidly changing world, but what happens then when what we think is challenged? What happens when what we think is challenged to the point that we get really defensive? What happens when what we think is challenged to the point that we get violent in response? What happens when what we think is challenged such that it ceases to be what we think? When that happens, we see that people's entire lives come crumbling down. They become shaky and uncertain and, and their whole life can kind of seem to be kind of in turmoil. But I think when we're taught how to think, how to engage, how to consider, how to be willing to come at questions, how to find the divine in the mundane, how to find beauty in brokenness, how to be uh, liberated by questions as much as answers, then I think we begin to understand what it means to be part of something bigger than ourselves. We, we begin to understand both the cost but also the necessity of love, rather than how to kind of quantify it and monitor it and constrain it and box it and kind of exact it. Which, which brings me back to Mandy's call to action. In response to difference, in response to struggles, in response to failings, in response to the portrayal of Trump as Julius Caesar, in, in response to a young man stealing a poster in a communist country as part of a dare, in response to political views that press all our buttons, in, in response to acts of violence and terror that are enacted by people of varying cultures and varying religions, in response to racist or misogynistic statements, in response to those moments where our convictions and our hackles kind of rise up and we're kind of moved to respond and enact inju oh, justice, enact justice to to comment on Facebook, if you're on Facebook, to, to draw conclusions, to, to condemn. In response to all that, what if? What if we opened up discussions rather than shutting them down? What if 
we engaged people on a level where we could inspire them to imagine a preferred future, where we could help people to describe what that preferred future might look like, about what that, their role in that future might look like, and how they might even be supported to get there. What if we were challenged by conviction, but moved by compassion? What if we did, as the Apostle Peter proposes, we, we sympathise with each other and love each other as brothers and sisters? What if we suffer with each other? What if we agree uh, to be tender-hearted and humble and repay evil and insults with blessing? What if? What if? <laughs>